Welcome to a special edition of the Burning Archive on what has just happened in Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul to the Taliban. The capitulation of the American Empire and the humanitarian crisis and changing geostrategic situation that is emerging in Central Asia. We will be talking about these days for years to come. That is the question on today's Burning Archive. Well, I was planning a uh, episode of the Burning Archive on uh, back on my theme of geopolitics and imperial decay, uh, but then over the course of a couple of weeks, the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, overwhelmed what appears to have been a somewhat illusory projection of military power by America and uh, swept the country, uh, taking over all its provincial capitals and then ultimately the capital of Kabul, forcing its president Ashraf Ghani into a ignominious flight, reminiscent perhaps of uh, Louis XVI going to Varenne in his carriage with uh, cars full of cash and running away to Tajikistan. And if one watches any of or follows any of the American uh, press, it is all about uh, the utter humiliation of America and the repetition of the television moment of the fall of Saigon at the end of the Vietnam War. And there is a kind of a crisis of the political soul going on amongst American elites. So, what has happened here? Um, What can history tell us about it? This is not a particularly scripted episode of the Burning Archive today, but I'm going to go through a few key points uh, just to make sense of these remarkable events. Let's say a couple of key points. One is it's clearly an enormous humanitarian crisis, and I think perhaps we should think about it not so much as the end of uh, the Vietnam War in Saigon as the withdrawal of Britain from India in 1947 or 48, the hasty and poorly organised exit of Britain from India in those years which led to an enormous political and humanitarian crisis and of course partition between India and Pakistan. I think also it's clearly the end of the Afghan-American wars. People talk about the end of a 20-year war. I would actually say this is the end of a 43-year war, and I'll go into that a bit later on in the episode. But really, this takes us back to the entry of American special forces in support of the Mujahideen in the late 1970s to undermine the Soviet Union and its ally in Afghanistan. Perhaps representative of that too, I think what we're seeing is the unwinding of a 
geostrategic strategy that has driven American diplomacy for a long time, and particularly in Eurasia. And it's clearly a catastrophic failure of the American Empire's military leadership, its intelligence leadership, its political leadership, its intellectual leadership. And I think there will be ripples from that loss of prestige and power. It's also exposed the weakness of the leadership class in America, the weakness of their thinking and their action and their performance of key functions of a national state. Uh, And I'm very pessimistic about the capacity of their institutions to adapt to this shock and, frankly, worried a bit for for the world about how they will respond. Then I think there's also an issue around, well, just what exactly will this formation of an Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan mean? How will they act? Will it be the dire, the most dire predictions of you know, a haven for terrorism and a repetition of the abuses of the Taliban from the 1990s, or will it be something different? And moreover, will how exactly can we factor into our thinking of about the international system the persistent presence of a Islamic emirate? as one form of state in amongst others. Then I think finally there is questions around, I guess, regional security arrangements in Eurasia, particularly around Afghanistan's near neighbours. And finally, finally, is this going to be a disaster for Afghanistan? Or will the end of the 43-year war actually provide an opportunity for Afghanistan to develop in a more positive uh, direction for its people. So they're the key points, I guess, I just wanted to cover in this uh, episode. Okay, so that's eight points, so let's get into them. So first is the humanitarian crisis. So there's a wonderful uh, interview with uh, a former Deputy Minister of Borders and Tribal Affairs, a former Afghani Minister of Borders and Tribal Affairs called Dr. Freydon Barakzai. Barakzai, by the way, is one of the ruling family names that's covered in the wonderful William Dalrymple's Return of the King of the the powerful families of uh, Afghanistan and the Durrani Empire. But that's a bye-to-bye. I wonder if he's related. He probably is. So there's a wonderful uh, interview with him on Russia Today that talks about, I think, half a million displaced persons in Kabul at the moment in a city of six million. And that may even be an underestimate, but there's a huge number of people who've uh, fled from other parts of Afghanistan half a million people without homes in a very bad situation. So quite apart from the fears and the risks of uh, other kinds of human rights abuses, there is an enormous number of displaced persons and a huge humanitarian crisis at the moment. And it, it seems that the international community 
as we say, is perhaps not sufficiently focused on practical organisation of the delivery of support and aid to those people rather than uh, running away as fast as they can from Kabul. And in a way, I think uh, it's interesting to compare, to reframe, I guess, the American media focus on this, the fall of Kabul as being the same as the fall of Saigon with the compelling images of the people clambering up airport ladders to try to escape Kabul and clambering onto American helicopters to exit the American embassy or the Kabul airport and uh, American embassy. There's certainly a part of that But I think perhaps the much more big tragic dimension, I guess, of it is not so much the fleeing of the American civilians and contractors and embassy staff and uh, military people and diplomats as the huge humanitarian catastrophe that could befall so many uh, Afghans at the moment on the top of 43 years of war. So that's, I think, probably number one thing about this situation. And to me, that makes a comparison not so much with Saigon in 1974 as India and Pakistan in 1947 when the Lord Mountbatten and the British government left India, the British Empire, the Raj, left India in a hasty, rushed fashion. And as a result, there were... Uh, millions of displaced people and a hasty arrangement made to partition Pakistan from India, uh, huge communal violence, many deaths, a huge, huge kind of refugee problem that is perhaps not dissimilar to some of the things we're seeing in Afghanistan at the moment. Okay, so that's point number one, the humanitarian crisis. Point number two is it's, it's been said a lot in the media that this is the end of a 20-year war dating back to 2001. The Biden administration renegotiated the deadline for the American exit with the Taliban to make it coincide with 9-11. So yeah, the, the general story is this war began in 2001 as a retribution against Osama bin Laden. And that is true. But the American involvement in Afghanistan really dates from the late 1970s when the Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was then the National Security Advisor to Jimmy Carter, sent in special, uh, like the CIA and special forces and lots of, and armed the uh, Islamic Mujahideen, who were really the predecessors to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, to disrupt and weaken uh, the Soviet Union's presence in Afghanistan and Central Asia. And really ever since, we've been having these wars, which began almost as proxy wars between America and the Soviet Union as part of the Cold War and the sort of global struggle for geostrategic preeminence. So this is the end of a 43-year-old war, not uh, a shorter war. And it's interesting, actually, tuned into the United Nations Security Council discussion of uh, the Afghanistan situation last night. And 
the I think both the Chinese and Russian uh, diplomats who were speaking at the United Nations Security Council made this point that this is the end of a 40-year-plus war, not a 20-year war. It is really the end of the Afghan-American wars, which perhaps are now comparable to the Anglo-Afghan wars of the mid-19th century. Equally disastrous. Okay, and the reference, so that's point number two. So this is the end of a 43-year-old Afghan series of Afghan-American wars. Okay, point number three is, in a way, this is also perhaps the unwinding of a long, persistent geostrategic strategy. I guess you could like the neoconservative strategy that's driven American military uh, strategy diplomacy for decades now. And it, in a way, does go back to the intervention of America in Afghanistan back in 1979 when Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a former Polish-American security official who was in the mid-1970s Jimmy, President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, advised Carter to get involved in Afghanistan to project power into Central Asia and to undermine the Soviet Union. I will actually go into this a little bit more in the actual plan next episode I was going to give on on the emergence of the re-emergence of the world island. But you can actually read Zabrinsky, uh, Brzezinski's memos, and I'll, I'll do that next time from the late 1970s about that. But it's worth noting that in 1997, Brzezinski actually gave an interview with, I think, a French newspaper, Le Nouvel Observateur, about his role. And he explains there that about six months, six months before the Soviets entered Afghanistan, this, this is his words, he advised that the president that in my judgment I thought they would be going into Afghanistan and I decided then and I recommended to the president that we shouldn't be passive. We immediately launched a two-fold process when we heard the Soviets had entered Afghanistan. The first involved direct reactions and sanctions focused on the Soviet Union and the second course of action led to my going to Pakistan a month or so after but a purpose of coordinating a joint response, the purpose of which would be to make the Soviets bleed for as much and as long as is possible, and that included giving weapons to the Mujahideen and coordinating with a range of other states, uh, including buying arms for the Mujahideen. US National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. 
The purpose of coordinating with the Pakistanis would be to make the Soviets bleed. In the interview, the interviewer actually asks him, this is 20 years after these events, and whatever it is now, like 24 years before this disastrous end of the Anglo, uh, the Afghan-American wars, asks him, reflecting on that whole situation in Afghanistan, do you think it was worth all the suffering that was involved? And Brzezinski says, I think the Soviets made a tragic mistake and therefore it wasn't worth their while to go in. I think it would have been a tragedy if we had allowed them to overrun the Afghans. This strategy of controlling Central Asia through having a large footprint in Afghanistan and sort of, you know, using, trying to exploit opposition forces to whatever powers one might have to do so, it has been, you know, critical to American diplomacy for decades and is clearly now unwinding. It would seem that America is has lost its foothold in Central Asia and this is likely to be something of a crisis for the American national security state's approach to things, especially a crisis for the sort of neoconservatives who are so, so dominant. Okay, fourth point is, and uh, can I just say before that though, I think I'll talk a little bit more about the whole thinking behind that and why it's so significant geostrategically in my next episode. Fourth point is this is an astonishing failure of the American empire, a failure of military leadership, intelligence, strategic leadership, political leadership. It is likely to have a dramatic impact in terms of loss of prestige and power as well as, I mean, just... It physically, they have ceded a huge amount of weaponry to <laughs> Afghanistan, some of which apparently has been shipped over to Iran, and their their credibility, their authority, their their soft power, so to speak, has has suffered a dramatic fall. Over on the Burning Archive blog, I penned a little article on the weekend describing describing this as the fall of the American Empire's Potemkin province. Uh, now, a Potemkin village is like a, a pretend happy happy village which is trotted out for propaganda purposes, particularly propaganda purposes to be presented to the powerful, to make them believe that everything is uh, hunky-dory when in fact it's all just an illusion. And you can read more about this uh, on my blog. But it would seem in a way that for all all that we have heard for and seen on film for 20 plus years now about the Green Zone and the, the Bagram, you know, military base, etc. And the arming of the uh, Afghani forces there was a hell of a lot of illusion about it. It appears that there were, you know, lies about the numbers of people, that people weren't being paid, that 
<laughs> the logistics weren't being provided, that civilian contractors and warlords were creaming off money. The whole thing is just, it's just appalling. And part of the shock and the realisation that it all fell so much more quickly than uh, America was predicting or, or claiming is, I guess, just that self-delusion, that belief in in the the projection of American power that was false. And clearly, look, I mean, uh, don't ask America to organise an evacuation and a defence of your city. Uh, I mean, really, it's just appalling. There have been some utterly appalling images. There have been quite a few ex-military leaders uh, in the American media who've been saying some basic things about the organisation of the withdrawal have been poorly run. There's even been claims that President Biden sort of refused to follow the military advice. Now, I take that with a grain of salt because there's also been many stories about the military constantly sort of sabotaging efforts to withdraw from Afghanistan through providing misleading advice or things not being possible or needs to take longer and all the rest of it. But uh, it's I think one of the comments people have made was there's this reliance on the Kabul airport alone and that America left the Bagram airbase. So that would have been the thing to hold on to if you wanted to evacuate in an orderly fashion. You want to have at least two evacuation points by air. So terrible, terrible failure from the American military leadership. And apparently it would seem, despite calls for it, no accountability. And I go into this a little bit in my um, blog post uh, on the weekend. Okay, point number five is related to that, and it just shows the sort of weakness and derangement of the leadership class in America. And this is across the political spectrum. Now, I've seen people say that the spectre of a gerontocracy in America trying to uh, organise this response is just tragic and pathetic. But I've also seen people sort of, I guess, on the right who make these bizarre statements about how appalling it is that, you know, America should be defeated by the savage goat herds from from the medieval Afghani society. And it's sort of like the most insulting and delusional sort of comments about the people who've just defeated you militarily. And then we'll go on to say, well, you know, what we should do is if they if they do anything wrong, if the Taliban do anything wrong, we should just go in and bomb them back to the twelfth century, which is utterly unethical and utterly bizarre and just a reflection of how how lost uh, the American political leadership class across the political spectrum appears to be how they just seem to have no way of navigating their uh, way out of global hegemony and living at peace with the rest of the world. This is a bit of a worry because clearly they've been humiliated and there's a risk of them lashing out like a wounded animal against someone or other. But there's so many signs of 
appalling sclerosis in their political institutions that it's unlikely that they will adapt sensibly. So that's about America. What about the... So this is my sixth point, which is with Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban have now declared the formation of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And clearly one of the issues everyone who's waiting and seeing on is how will they act this time. And clearly in back in the nineties there was the you know appalling abuses and there've certainly been reports of uh, abuses now. I've also seen reports including from a you know incredibly incredible uh incredibly off, uh incredibly credible is that the right word? But certainly uh, expert and sensible William Dalrymple, who I'm just going to pause there and insert one extra thing into the discussion about the failure of the political, political class. So there is a former Portuguese foreign minister, I think, Bruno Macias, who has who's been extraordinarily critical of the political... He's, I guess pretty centrist liberal kind of person as as in centrist progressive kind of person who has been incredibly critical of Biden's response to this and Biden is really a standing for a a large part of this leadership class that's failed in uh, this situation and he quotes from an article in the Atlantic last year by George Packer that recounts the discussions between Biden when he was vice president about Afghanistan, that he championed nation-building in Afghanistan in the early years of war, but had turned against it and had a pretty pretty brutal attitude, I guess, for towards his his uh, the responsibility and consequences of his actions. So it says here, by the time Biden and this is from the Atlantic article that Bruno Macias quotes from. By the time Biden became vice president in 2009, the disastrous war in Iraq, the endemic corruption of the Afghan government and the return of the Taliban had made him a deep sceptic of the American commitment. He became the Obama administration's strongest voice for getting out of Afghanistan. In 2010, he told Richard Holbrook, Obama's special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, that the US had to leave Afghanistan regardless of the consequences for women or anyone else. According to Holbrook's diary, when he asked about American obligations to Afghans like the girl in the Kabul school, Biden replied with a history lesson from the final US withdrawal from Southeast Asia in 1973. Quote marks, and this is reported speech from Joe Biden, and apologies. Well, I'm not going to say the word, but it's F and free letters rhyming with puck. That, we don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. So don't believe any crocodile tears from our friends in the White House. I guess everyone is watching, watching what's happening. Now, Obviously, I have no direct connections with Kabul, but let me just quote a couple of tweets from the historian William Dalrymple on the, I guess it would have been the 16th of August. So he says, Talking to friends from Kabul, there appears to be a lull. While the Taliban leadership arrived from Quetta and Doha, 
in the more distant Afghan province. They are not ready to enter Kabul and Ghani's flight has left a power vacuum. The main danger today is looting and criminality. Ghani, that is the former president who fled to Tajikistan with cars full of cash, Ghani must bear a large share of the responsibility for the collapse. His impatience, rudeness and arrogance alienated many tribal leaders and he entirely lacked the charm and politeness that made Karzai a much more popular figure. Very few were willing to die to keep him in power. There are, now this is interesting, there are small optimistic signs that the Talibs may actually grant amnesty and not seek a vengeful bloodbath. There are reports that Ismail Khan has been allowed to flee to Iran and the Talibs are talking to ex-president Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah about security, but far too early to call. So this is a watch this space situation. We will see what happens. But whatever happens in terms of, I guess, the domestic Afghani situation, I guess the world is going to have to come to terms with the fact that there is an Islamic emirate of uh, Afghanistan that sort of reflects the values the, and conflicting values of that society in some sort of way. And it will never be a liberal democracy on the American model, but it can be some form of better Islamic Emirate than the Taliban of the 1990s. The question is, how does one make that happen and make it happen in a way that is a reasonable compromise, I guess, between the values of the people of Afghanistan, the conflicting values of the people of Afghanistan and our own? And how, how much in a multipolar world should we seek to impose one form of state on another? It's a really difficult, I think, question that we'll all need to deal with. Okay, so this gets me to my next point, which is the seventh point, which is, are we going to see a shift now from, if you like, security in that part of the world, in Central Asia, Central Eurasia, being through a massive American military presence, hunting down terrorists, or will it shift to some more uh, regional security agreements? If you like, will the fate of peace and development in Afghanistan rely less on America and more on Iran, one of its neighbours, India, one of its neighbours, Pakistan, one of its neighbours, China, one of its neighbours, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and the great power immediately north of those three Central Asian states, Russia. There has been talk about, uh, significant talk with Russian and Chinese diplomats about Afghanistan becoming, under the Taliban, sort of getting integrated into some of the Eurasian economic and security arrangements that are being set up between China, Russia and, and some of those other states. And I think I will probably talk about that. That was my plan to talk a little bit more about that in the next episode on the re-emergence of the world island. I suspect that's what we're going to be seeing. And again, that 
sort of theme came through in the comments from the Russian and Chinese uh, diplomats at the United Nations Security Council discussion of Afghanistan. Finally then, my eighth point is that clearly this could be a terrible thing. It could be a terrible, the humanitarian crisis could well get worse. The Taliban could, I, I think there was a Russian diplomat who said that about two-thirds of the Taliban are interested in a peaceful settlement, peaceful political agreement, some sort of inclusive uh, government, and that they're tired of fighting. But presumably that also means there's one-third who are prepared to continue on with more extreme and violent policies. So how that, that balance of forces settles within the Taliban, within Afghanistan, will be the thing I guess a lot of us will be watching over the next uh, little while and one can only hope it it does develop in a way for peace. But there have been certainly some scenarios where people imagine or project perhaps that if the Taliban do move more to let's say the center and adopt a still islamic form of state but a more inclusive form of islamic state that's also more inclusive of the range of interests and tribes and ethnic identities and and i guess genders in afghanistan then it could lead to especially if then integrated with those broader eurasian regional and economic arrangements effectively with Chinese investment money, the Belt and Road Initiative, and Russian investment as well, and a more both Russia and China have urged Taliban to renounce any support for Islamic terrorism and also to um, crack down on the opium trade. So it could be, despite all the dire projections, there's also a, a possible scenario. I'm not sure how probable it is, but let's say... Let's say it's at least a 25% scenario where arguably the best thing for Afghanistan would be, is the withdrawal of America from its long-standing geostrategic strategy to control Central Asia from afar and then subject Afghanistan to 43 years of war and allow Afghanistan to develop socially and economically in a way, and diplomatically, I guess, in a way that that it that relates more to its culture and its immediate regional partners of China, Russia, etc. So, if America could accept, I guess, the retrenchment of its geostrategic aims and the growth of a multipolar world, perhaps that would be the best thing for Afghanistan's long-term peace, provided, obviously, of course, that that is done in a way that moves away from endemic violence, both, I guess, religious fundamentalist violence as well as uh, gender-based violence within its society. We shall see, we shall see interesting times, but also world-shaking times, world-shaking times. And I think I'm going to talk a little bit less breathlessly about uh, some of these points next week so I will talk more about I guess my comments about I guess the geostrategic situation in Central Asia the and how that relates to the theme of imperial decay and 
the idea of of the world island which connects to a, a British geographer from the early 20th century Harold Mackinder and in a way drove some of the thinking of Mr. Zbigniew Brzezinski. But I thought I might just close on a personal connection because a, a few years ago I spoke to a woman called Nuriel who ran a Afghani restaurant in Melbourne in the and was a I guess a leader within the Afghani community in Melbourne in Australia and gave and talked about the whole issue of refugees and asylum seekers and it was quite an extraordinary encounter and I wrote a poem about it called Nuriel's Shoes and I thought I'd just close out this special episode on Afghanistan by reading this poem, Nuriel's Shoes, which is from my book, Gathering Flowers of the Mind, Collected Poems, 1996-2020, which you can buy in print or ebook from Amazon, Booktopia, other online re- retailers. And this poem is called Nuriel's Shoes. Nuriel does not know time wasting. She does not know carelessness. Asylum seekers She cannot forgive them for buying their way to freedom, for walking past crying millions in the camps, and the lawyers who parade their bookish rights like flash cars she despises. She fled Kabul in 79, an educated woman in a liberal society that just did not take. Paris schooled her for a time, just like Khomeini, another exile, before the great southern land gave her freedom, but not a home. She remembers Kabul, its ordered streets and fruit trees, the women laughing in the sunshine, the children dressed in fine cottons playing in the gardens, then the tanks, the shells, the war, the hatred that brought Afghanis to this kitchen at the other end of the world. Here she returned the gift, making scarred men into kitchen hands, running English classes for the women, outwitting the men who would wrap their women in silent ignorance to cocoon their cards and drink and faith. Nuriel's freedom must be worked for. To those many who do, she gives all that she can. Now she returns to Kabul after the Taliban have fled her city for now. In abandoned parks, children play barefooted between rubble and shells. Schools barely hold their girls against poisoned faiths. To these schools, she decides to give, so no more Afghanis will flee to her rich refuge, but stay in her remembered home. She buys the children shoes, hundreds of boxes of shoes. One summer, she visits a school with her gifts, watching as the children begin their long walk home. She sees one girl carrying her box, 
still barefooted in the hard dust of the street. Nuriel asks, Why don't you put them on? The girl replies, I must wash my feet first. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode on the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, We may well talk about some more and I hope you enjoyed that poem about the remarkable uh, Nuriel and I hope she is well and indeed the child she gave her shoes to is well too. Okay, take care uh, and as Ezra Pound will say in a moment, remember that what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well remains, the rest is dross. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage, whose world, or mine, or theirs, or is it of none? First came the scene, then thus the palpable Elysium over in the halls of hell. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee.